0: Welcome to the David Suisa podcast. This is David Suiza and today we're delighted to have my good friend Salvatore Litvak, also known as Accidental Talmudist, who is now up to a million followers on Facebook in more than 70 countries. Salvatore, welcome.
1: Thank you, David. What an honor and a pleasure to be here.
0: You know, it's funny because your Accidental Talmud is sort of started off as an accident. I remember you had a, a cover story in the Jewish Journal and then you called me up and, and I, you know, what happened?
1: Uh, it's something that only could have been arranged by Hashem. Uh, but the, the basic thing is that as a kid, I had a bar mitzvah and then I was gone and was disconnected from Judaism for many years, and for 20 years. And then when my grandmother passed, uh, who was a survivor and who carried my mother as an infant through a concentration camp, uh, and lost her husband uh, and so lived with us. And we were just so close uh, all my life. Um, and we lost her in 1997. It was a very powerful shared death experience. And, uh, and I was so moved. And I've written about this uh, in a piece called I Saw My Grandmother's Soul Leave Her Body. Um, and it's just this peak beyond the curtain. And, uh, and I was so moved, I got back to Los Angeles and I wanted to honor her and sort of keep this thing going. And so I, I went to a synagogue for maybe the first time in years where I wasn't dragged there and I didn't feel like it was just a chore. And, uh, and I had a very moving experience that day and then I realized that this spiritual thing that I had been seeking in so many other places, not in other religions, but in meditation, in endurance sports, in Grateful Dead shows, and drum circles, uh, maybe I should check my own backyard. And that's when I started taking Judaism seriously and learning. Uh, and there's great rabbis here in L.A. And every rabbi I took a class from would sooner or later mention the Talmud. And I would think, I don't know what the Talmud is, but it must be full of wisdom. I want to know more about it. And any time I'd be getting a book or a gift down at the mitzvah store, Rabbi Kraft's store on Pico, I would see the Talmud, which to me looked like three encyclopedia Britannicas, 73 volumes. And I would think, okay, that's the Talmud. It's obviously full of wisdom. It's so big. But I wouldn't know where to start. I don't know what it is. And I don't know if I'm allowed. Maybe you have to be a rabbi or you have to be a certain age. And so I would walk away from it intimidated. Repeat a dozen
0: times. You know what? That's still where I'm at. (laughs) Of all the things I love about Judaism, you know, you and I have to talk more about this because for me, so much of my experience with the Talmud has been like facing the fine print in a Verizon contract, you know? And this is how you squeeze the lemon on Shabbat and so forth. The the legalese and the microscopic detail, it was never obvious to me you know, how relevant that was, although I have to confess there were some notable exceptions. There was this one Talmudic class with Danny Landis where he took this one paragraph that was completely foggy. I had no idea what they were talking about. And after an hour, it was cleared up. So I, I've tasted what you're talking about, but it's not the dominant. So in the hands of flavor. a great
1: teacher, they can take a line or two from the Talmud and open it up for you. And then you see, okay, there's wisdom here. But I'm never satisfied just to get it secondhand. I, I want to get my, my own hands on the book, right? So, But but it's so intimidating, 73 volumes. Where do you start? How could you do it? And so, like I said, a dozen times I walked away. One time, I don't know why, it was 2005. Uh, I went through the same thought process. I'm walking away from that shelf of books uh, in the mitzvah store, and I just stopped in my tracks and said, this is ridiculous. They're just books. There must be a book one. I'll get that and see what it's like. I found book one. I took it to the counter and the kid at the register says, huh, you're doing Dafyomi. I say,
0: what's Dafiomi?
1: What's Dafiomi? Now you're going to have to describe this for
0: your listeners. He goes to me like this. Oh, <laughs> like a shocked look. How dare you not know <laughs> what Dafiomi is as he takes his... Uh, lowers his glasses, lowers on, his his glasses on his nose.
1: <laughs> like, are you kidding me? And, uh, and I'm thinking, oh, man, Dafiomi's a code. If you know this code, you're allowed to read the Talmud. If you don't know the code, you're not allowed to read the Talmud. Now he knows. I'd, I'm not allowed. He doesn't want to embarrass me. I am embarrassed. I have to get out of here. I feel like an idiot. And he says, Dafyomi is a program uh, where people around the world study the entire Talmud, one page a day, on the same schedule. When you do that, it takes seven and a half years to study the entire Talmud. And today is day one.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Of that program. And so, I mean, the odds against that are ridiculous. It would have been amazing if I entered in the second month of a seven and a half year but day cycle. day one. But it was literally day
0: one. Day one was the day you decided to take book one.
1: March fifth, two thousand five. I happened to buy book one of seventy three books on day one of a two thousand seven hundred and eleven day cycle. Seven <laughs> and a half. If that years. doesn't
0: take you out of your atheism, I don't know what was.
1: Exactly, it was it was a it was a, a gift from from God. Uh, and I got it. I said, okay, God, I'm going to do Dafiomi. And, uh, and right away I learned you don't study Talmud alone. You need
0: a teacher. So, or a uh, partner. Or a partner. Right? Yeah,
1: exactly. So I didn't have any partner to learn Talmud with. I, lo- I, I researched the question, okay, you can take a Dafiomi class, a shir. Uh There's one in the neighborhood in Pico Robertson at the Eula Boys School. It's taught at 9 p.m., because there are three kinds of dafiomi classes. There's, there's the morning one. No, there's Hebrew, right. Yiddish, or English. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so for me, it's going to be English. Start with English. <laughs> so I go to this, I show up at this class, the other students come in, the rabbi walks in, he starts teaching in this English class, and every other word from his mouth was either Hebrew or Aramaic, and uh, I had no idea what he was saying. So I could find, and it takes about an hour a day to study. Now, when you
0: saw that group, did you say to yourself, I am going to see these exact same people for seven and a half years?
1: I I didn't even get that far. Since I didn't understand what the teacher was saying, I said, I can find an hour a day to read this on my own, because art scroll is not just a translation. Oh, correct. It's a teacher. It's a teacher teaching it to you. Uh, So I can do that. I I would have to read the page first, study the page first, and then come listen to this teacher if I'm going to understand anything he's saying. And I didn't have two hours a day, so I just did it on my own for the next three years. Wow! Um, and then every we moved, morning, usually in the morning, yeah, uh, or sometimes at night. But you, you got to do it.
0: And what was it like doing it alone? What was it like? At which point did you say, "Oh my God, this—I'm in. I'm all in." I
1: said, "I said I'm all in right at in the, the beginning, beginning because God put that book in my right, hands." Right, but
0: intellectually. <laughs> But intellectually. intellectually, there
1: were many days. When you read the whole Talmud in order, I mean, it's like working your way through the U.S. code, right? It, it, you could spend three months just on the laws of the boundaries of the Sabbath and how far you can walk mm-hmm. and how do you establish that boundary and where do you measure from, et cetera. But then, all of a sudden, you'll run into a Talmudic digression, which could go literally anywhere, just because one rabbi said something about the laws of the boundary, and this rabbi also said... Uh, that when you divorce a woman, you should think about her in the following way. I mean, it could go anywhere. And, uh, and there are so many non-legal, beautiful, beautiful collections of wisdom in the Talmud.
0: Cryptic. Cryptic. Stories. ancient. Midrashic. Uh,
1: you know, but, but, but things like, and, okay, here's something so relevant to today. Right, We live in this country that feels like it's never been so divided in our lifetimes. It has been more divided in history. I mean, the Civil War <laughs> was a time when it was more divided. But okay, in our lifetimes, it's never felt so divided. So in Jewish history, there was a time when the, the followers of Hillel were very divided from the followers of Shammai. Right. So the, these were the people who were saying this is the way Judaism has to go for all time. And on a certain issues, they were so divided that they would come to blows. I mean, they were just complete enemies of each other. Uh, and how did they reconcile which way the tradition will go? Well, a voice came from heaven and said that these and these are the words of the living God. Both sides are speaking truth. Both sides are coming from the heart and coming up with interpretations that are true. But the law has to go one way, and it's going to follow Hillel. Why? Because the students of Hillel are easy and forbearing and they state the opinions of their opponents before their own. Right now, in America, we live in a time where people are refusing to even consider the opposing opinion opinions, of the, other. the opinion of the other, let alone state it, and state it before their own. The most you can get these days for people to state the opinions of their opponents is sarcasm. Well, the other side says such and such, but it's ridiculous. What we learn from the students of Hillel is that you should be able to state the opinion of your opponent in a way that your opponent will say, yes, that is my opinion. When you do that, you've opened a door where he says, okay, I feel heard. Now I'm willing to hear what you have to say. Now, the people who are so passionate about the political situation right now, why are they passionate? Because they want America to go in the right direction. They feel it's going in the wrong direction. Okay, well, to create change so that it will go in the right direction, you need to pull people to your side. You need to get people to listen to you. You have to offer that you will listen to them and hear what they're saying before you'll ever get people to listen to you and be swayed by you.
0: There's an amazing clip that went viral on YouTube. It was a uh, Black Lives Matter group that sort of ambushed a Donald Trump Rally. And the guy in Black Lives Matter, his name was Hawk Newsom. So, for some reason, the head of the Trump rally decided to invite him up to speak to the stage. And in the beginning of the clip, you think that there's a fight that's going to happen. I mean, a physical brawl is about to happen. So, you have these classic white Trump voters at a rally doing their thing of Make America Great Again, and you have this group from Black Lives Matter. And then eventually he goes up, they offer him to come up on stage, and the first thing, it's exactly what you're saying. He starts using language that just, you know, empathizes with them. He says, I'm an American. Yeah. And he starts saying things that they really could agree with. Like he was understanding where they were coming from, and then he told them where he was coming from. And this most extraordinary thing happened. So, these group of Trump voters who probably hate groups like Black Lives Matter, like cheering him on. This was like, this was not the dominant mode, but it was a worthy exception. Hawk Newsom, for anyone listening,
1: I I want to hear you
0: But he said some some hard things, but by the time he said the hard things, he was not seen as some foreign element who was against. America who was against Trump voters, he did exactly what you said, which is try to understand the other side when you speak your own piece. Mm-hmm. Now that's a matter of principle, right, in the Talmud. But there's also some wonderful nuggets, I mean, over the years. the one, The one that I remember, although I've never studied it personally, but I remember Dennis Prager saying that his favorite teaching in the Talmud is, if you know for sure you're not gonna buy something, yeah. <laughs> Don't get a quote on the price. Right. No. So I, I, I want to ask you two things. One, if you can talk more about that. And two, if you've come across some of these wonderful nuggets in the Talmud that you can share with us.
1: Sure. Um, so so first on the, on the one you just mentioned, this is very important. And it, it's almost like in, in the past they were saying in a marketplace – don't go up and waste a salesman's time, he's probably working on commission and for you to just ask the price of something if you're not intending to buy it, or even more specifically, if in a marketplace you ask the price of something, you don't really intend to buy it, you're just making conversation, but then you don't buy it and somebody else witnesses that, then you have devalued that the owner's wares in the eyes of another potential customer and you're creating a harm to him. And this is a form of Lashon Hara. I mean, it's a form of evil speech. I never heard that interpretation. But today... It's so common. It's so, And today it's much bigger, right? Today, people plan to buy online. They will even take their Amazon app on the phone out while they're standing in a store, right? You're, you're in Best Buy. You're going to get that TV. Well, let me see if I can get on Amazon cheaper. Oh, yeah, I'll just click here. Now, you can do that. But what you cannot do is ask a Best Buy salesman to explain to you the difference between TVs and which is higher quality and which is better, what brand, et cetera.
0: And mislead him into thinking you're going to buy. And that he could get a
1: commission Mm -hmm. for, for spending that time with you when, in fact, you're always planning to get the cheaper price later. And you've stolen his time. I mean, his expertise is valuable to you. That's why you're in there asking him the question. That's a high standard of ethics. But a necessary one. I mean, we, we need to have higher standards of ethics. I mean, mm-hmm. values is what's—we're not in a good place Well, you know, wh- wh-
0: look, when the president of the United States says, it depends what the meaning of the word is, is, basically <laughs> it's, uh, you know, we see our role models just playing by the legal book and just going by the letter of the law. What you're saying is we really are obligated to go to a much higher standard than that. We are. We
1: are. And, and and we don't always meet that standard, even we as, as the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you look at a teaching from, from Pirkei Avos, Chapters of the Fathers. It says not once but twice, greet everyone. Shammai says, greet every man with a cheerful face. And Rabbi Yishmael says, greet every person with joy, which is understood to be an even higher standard. Now, you know, you walk around our religious neighborhoods, and you see people who are clearly Jewish and clearly religious, and they're walking around, and, and maybe you don't look like one of them, or maybe even you do. You know, and you walk by and you say, good Chavez! And sometimes you go, eh, how you doing, Chavez? You know, and, and often they just ignore you and they walk past you. Now, I think that we as Jews have honed a survival instinct over millennia of being persecuted, in every place on earth, right? And we've learned to keep our nose down and stay out of trouble. But it is a, an established teaching of our sages that you need to greet people. You need to greet them, not just walk past them and not just mutter a, a little offhanded, how you doing? Good job." Yeah. We need to say, good Shabbos. Hello. Good morning. Uh, Why? Why is it so important? I mean, why do you think, David? Why are greetings important?
0: Well, it's funny. Joseph Tolushkin was here a few weeks ago, and he spoke about our public face and how crucial it was to manage our public face in a way that would not hurt others, right? And he said, a lot of times, you know, you might be in a lousy mood... And it's reflected in your face. Meanwhile, the person who's sitting next to you thinks that they're responsible for your lousy mood, yeah. your lousy face. So he said, you, you have a responsibility because your public face really makes a statement. Yeah. And that could be taken in the wrong way. So it's wonderful because he's also so cheerful. I don't know if you've ever met him. And and that's so it's, it's a difficult thing to do because we're also told to be true to ourselves, right? So if you're you're not having a good day, and maybe you feel you're true to yourself by not faking it and not pretending that you're having a good day, and it's a it's a sensitive, it's a delicate issue because in Judaism, even though on the inside you might be having a lousy day, it doesn't mean you have to dump it on others either, right? It doesn't. Yeah.
1: Let's say you're Nikki Haley. Let's say you're the ambassador to the United Nations and you're having a bad day and you're bothered by something that went on and your kids were rude to you when you were driving them to school in the morning in the carpool whatever. And and then you're at the UN later that day and you're in that bad mood and the ambassador of uh, Ghana walks by you and says, hello, Miss Ambassador. She's not going to – she can't just say, yeah, how you doing and, 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 and put out a non-cheerful, non-greeting. She has a responsibility as an ambassador to represent not just herself but her country, right? And we as Jews are ambassadors. You know, we've been told, and that's in this week's Parsha, uh, that we must not desecrate the name of God. That's and a even specific it? commandment, and, and, and it's tied to the idea that we were brought out of Egypt for a reason. We are God's people— There are other people who have different relationship with God. It's not that we're so special, but we do have a unique relationship as Jews. We were present at Sinai. We were given the Torah. And so when we as visible Jews uh, fail to be good ambassadors on behalf of this life of faith, then that's a real problem. That's a hilul Hashem. That's a desecration of the name.
0: And if you take it to our personal lives and as parents... We have an obligation to have a cheerful mood in front of our kids. It's one of the things I've put at the top of my list was to try to not expose them to my lousy moods (laughs) because they don't deserve it. They've done nothing to deserve it. And I can recall many, many moments where that was one of my biggest challenges as a parent was to keep a cheerful mood because that's so critical to raising healthy kids is to keep a sense of joy when you're, when you're in the house with them. And I, I go out of my way to be silly and to be happy in front of my kids. And I, I have distinct memories of having real issues inside, having really bad days, really not happy. And they had no idea.
1: <laughs> well done. Yes, <laughs> <You> shekak. <laughs> <know? laughs>
0: yeah, that's... Uh, uh, I went to a lecture of Dennis Prager once at uh, at YIC. It was the, uh, the Avreich Lecture. And he spoke about happiness as a mitzvah. Mm-hmm. And that happiness is something you share with others. And he said, that he said, I have a lifetime war against moody people. That's what he said. And if you're moody, just, uh, you don't have to sort of dump it on others. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, David, I know you well. You know me well. I think we tend to be cheerful people. No one is cheerful all the time. Of course, we have really tough days. Probably there's other people that it's tougher for them to find that cheerful place uh, than than it is for us.
0: I got so it from my f- father. I got it from my father. My father was always cheerful, and I remember he had a very difficult time in his life, and I remember he's, he was always cheerful. I mean, we, we pick things up from our parents. Mm-hmm.
1: I wouldn't say my dad is as cheerful as I am. Um, but he could certainly be charming, and... Uh, but, but I would say is for people that have more trouble finding that cheerful place, it's a bigger accomplishment when they do it.
0: You yeah, and you go, you know, I often think we have a lot of guests at Shabbat. And there are certain guests that will... Be cheerful, and they're the ones I always reinvite over and over again. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> I Words know of the wise: Be cheerful. You get invited. Be <laughs> the cheerful. They're always making conversation, <laughs> and they're not going to talk about the latest terrorist attack over Shabbat that's going to lower the mood state. You know, and then there are others who sort of, you know, don't say anything for three hours, and that's okay. It's their right. It's just I always lean towards those who try to elevate the mood around them. You know and to create
1: that interaction. You asked me for another nugget from the Talmud earlier. Uh, this is a beautiful one. A dream not interpreted is like a letter not read. You know, so when when you wake up from a dream uh, and you remember it, you actually have a responsibility to do something with it. You have to think about it if possible. You could go to a wise person who can help you interpret the dream. Uh, it's not that, that our dreams are clear messages. Uh, often they're not. And there are different kinds of dreams. You know, th- there's a real difference between a prophetic dream and a, and a typical dream. Right? Prophetic dreams don't come along to everybody and, and, and even often to, to prophets. But everybody has dreams. And when you ask, what does that dream mean, you enter into a process. Right? When you start to ask that question, what could it mean, you'll naturally ask other questions what's going on in my life? what could it mean? what do I need to do what, where am I lacking And now you're you're in a process that can only lead to a beneficial place but if you don't engage in the process, it won't happen in the same way uh, that when we meet people, if we're cheerful we can open a conversation and then something may happen not every time, maybe not majority of times, but it may happen. Something really special could happen.
0: You know, one of my favorites that I've also heard, which is well-known, is the idea when you have a guest, what is it, 32 feet, 34 steps, to walk them, to walk them when they leave. To get them to their next destination. To accompany them. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it happened to me once where, you know, I left and the people were still in the house and I'm walking alone back to the entrance of the house and I walked out alone and I and I totally understood the importance of that small gesture which is somebody's in your home just walk them out don't let them walk themselves out it's it's, it's a small gesture but I know it's from the Talmud
1: yeah you're saying walk them to the door and even beyond the door and beyond and beyond the door right And and I think it's part of that same uh, gesture that you should know and where are you going next and how Mm. are you going to get there and Mm. do you have directions and do you have a bottle of water for your car, anything like that that you can do.
0: Now this goes way, way, way beyond the Ten Commandments here. You know, and I think this, uh, is this the the power of the Talmud is to go beyond? Because if you look at the state of the Jewish world today, I mean we're really floating at 20,000 feet and the language is always Jewish values Jewish values tikkun olam and caring for the stranger I mean it's which is wonderful but the language is not very Talmudic we don't we don't really get into the the ins and outs cuz we figured We've got it all figured out. I'm gonna fight for the environment. I'm gonna help the homeless. I'm gonna fight for social justice. I'm gonna march for women's rights. I'm done. What, do, what else do I need?
1: <laughs> you know, there are ideas like that all over the Talmud. There, there is environmental talk. There is social justice talk. There's all kinds of ideas like that in the Talmud. Those are real values and good values and ancient values. But the difference between that kind of talk in the culture today and what you find in the Talmud is God, right? What you don't hear these days is God talk. People don't like God talk. (laughs) And and that's where these values come from. In the Talmud, the sages are always engaged uh, in figuring out God's will, right? What, what, What does God want us to do in this situation? God gave us a set of guidelines how do we extrapolate from, uh, you know, from what we've learned, what we've heard, what we've seen in scripture to this novel situation? But they wouldn't say, well, what, may, what, what does common sense tell us to do here? They're always coming from the
0: place of what would God want us to do? There's a paradox here because in, you know, when you think about the Talmud, you think about God's children trying to figure it all out, right? And when you think of the Torah, uh, you think more about God and God giving us his commandments. And by the time we get to the Talmud, we're like, we're talking to each other and, and engaging and trying to figure out. But you're saying God is just as present.
1: Oh, 100%. And, and why? Our culture operates on, under the scientific philosophy, meaning all of our knowledge is incomplete. Whatever we know. We only know it in, in, until we find you know, a deeper knowledge. right? Science is always advancing. It's always exposing that what we thought we knew, we didn't know, and now we know something new. And so things that are new are, are thought to be wiser and smarter than things that are old. Judaism's quite the reverse. In Judaism, the the greatest moment of, of revealed wisdom was at Mount Sinai when God appeared to, to the whole world and at that place to two million Jews uh, and said, I am the Lord your God. I made you. I made you for these reasons. These are the laws that you're going to live by. And the people who were there had an absolute crystal clear understanding of everything they needed to know. And the further away we get from that moment,
0: the more is lost. right? Right. But some of it is good to lose, right? Because one of the things I've always heard is there's a lot of harshness in the Torah that needed to be calibrated and measured and adapted, you know, through the Talmud. The, the one that everyone knows is, you know, you got to stone your son to death if he desecrates the Shabbat. And from what I've been told is the Talmud is the If he's process. a glutton, he's a, he's he's a, a glutton. glutton <laughs> which is bad enough. Bad enough. But, you know, uh, I mean, what I've been told is that the Talmud is really our secret weapon in the way that it may, it brought some humanity to some of the harshness of the original text.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and through an ever unfolding process, and, and that was by design. But what we don't do is dismiss the wisdom of our ancestors, right? And, and so if something has to change or something has to adapt, we do that with the utmost respect, not just, dis, oh, it's old, discard, right? Which is how the culture seems to work so much these days. Well,
0: what are the boundaries of adaptation, I mean, this is a big subject, which is, you know, how far do you go and or the, or the role of women in the orthodox tradition? There's so many sensitive issues today. And how do you know the boundaries? Because in the orthodox tradition, it says that tradition itself has a legal status. So how, how do you how do you establish these boundaries of change? That's such a good
1: question. Um, the, I'll tell you the way I look at it. I think that throughout our history, in every generation, there has been a core which says change nothing ever, and a vanguard which says change everything. This is ridiculous. Out with the old. Look at this new situation. We need a whole new set of rules, and a big middle where you know you can I- identify yourself somewhere in that spectrum between tradition and, and innovation. And I think it was the system was designed to be this way. The system was designed to be in tension in every generation. Uh, And that if the traditionalists made a good enough argument, they would pull the whole spectrum a little bit toward them. Or if the innovators made a good enough argument in a situation, they would pull the whole spectrum a little bit in their direction. But I think we have always had, you know, the idea of orthodox conservative and reform, that's only a couple hundred years old. But even a thousand years ago, you had traditional Jews who were doing everything that was received in their community, and you had people wandering off the derrick, wandering off the path, and and assimilating and leaving Jewish tradition behind because it was economically attractive or because they wanted to marry somebody who wouldn't have been available otherwise. And I think this has always been happening. I think we've always
0: been losing Jews
1: and gaining Jews and losing traditionalists and gaining
0: traditionalists you know it's interesting cause i have a background in in advertising and if somebody asked me what would be the book that would be least likely to be on the bestseller list in the jewish world it'd be the talmud <laughs> <laughs> it's got a terrible curb appeal it, it's i mean first of all it's impossibly long And it's so detailed. It's the exact opposite of where the world is today, which is the Twitter generation and everything, you know, is instant. And and you're now immersed in a book that that goes completely against the force of gravity today. And you still manage to have a million followers. That I want to know how you pull that off. (laughs) <laughs> by, by Twitterizing the Talmud. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. We do share it
1: in small pieces. First of all, I want to say nothing that, that I do at Accidental Talmudist, and you find us at AccidentalTalmudist.org and Accidental Talmudist on Facebook, and nothing that we do at Accidental Talmudist would be possible without my wife, Nina. Uh, she is, I mean, she's my partner in all of it. Uh, so you don't really
0: do much? It's really her?
1: Yeah, I'm just a just a figurehead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, we're, we were a screenwriting team uh, in, in making films, and I know you, you saw... How do uh, I know <laughs> you were a screenwriting
0: team? Because you've made one of my all-time favorite movies, When Do We Eat, a cult classic. When Do We Eat and Zoolander are two big family favorites. I really highly recommend anybody who's listening to this show to see when Do we eat which is uh, astonishingly dysfunctional passover seder filmed brilliantly with memorable scenes and it's become a cult hit
1: it has thank god that was our dream um I'm going to get back to answering your question, but it was always Nina and my dream that it would become the Jewish It's a Wonderful Life, that just like people watch that movie at the holidays every year, people would watch our movie every year in the spring as Passover is approaching. Uh, and and when it came out, it was a disaster at the box office, not mediocre, something like that. You know, The New York Times was offended by our movie and, and Roger Ebert was offended by our film, so much so that he did the one thing that a movie critic would never do. He gave away the ending on national <laughs> <Wow>. TV. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, and what was it? How, why were we so offensive? Rabbis loved our movie, right? So, so who were we offending? It was a Jewish dysfunctional family comedy. Uh, and we had rabbis from Reform to Haredi. I mean, Chabad rabbis, uh, all kinds of, you know, really involved Jewish writers and thinkers. So who loved did you movie. offend? I, I think we offended—the uh, Listen, the, the message of the movie is that Jews misbehave, just like all groups do. And when we misbehave and treat each other badly, our tradition has something to offer us. For, for healing family relationships. And all that happens in the course of a very wild and raucous comedy set at a Passover Seder where there's a newly religious son come home to a very secular family, trying to bring a little bit of this wisdom with him, but it's still very raw for him. He doesn't know how to teach it. He's just sharing you know, sayings, as it were. And, uh, and it, it does not go well <laughs> at first, but eventually there is some healing, of course, uh, but maybe the people who were offended by the movie were secular Jews who felt like, uh, yeah, no, don't don't mix the religion with the secular comedy. I, I don't know,
0: I don't know. It's interesting, because when I first met you, you had just done that film, and I just loved the film. I think we just went out for lunch because I wanted to talk to you about the film. Yeah. And I was in the advertising agency business, and you're in the film business, and somehow our lives got taken over by stuff. <laughs> you, you bumped into the Talmud, I bumped into the Jewish world, and when I look at you now, although you're still doing films, it's like your Talmudic journey seems to dominate your life.
1: It has totally taken over. Um, what I was saying before is that Nina and I, just as we were a screenwriting team, we do this together. When we were a screenwriting team, You know, her strength was character. Mine was more dialogue and structure and and their complementary strengths. And likewise, on our page, she still focuses on character. She writes our Thursday hero pieces, which are very popular.
0: Talk Uh, to me about that page, that famous Talmudic, accidental Talmudic page.
1: On Facebook? Yes. So so we've created this community. And just to, to tie up the When Do We Eat strand, uh, so we thought that Wendy we died, and no one saw it, and our dream was destroyed. You saw it, thank God, and we had oh, yeah. a friendship come out of it. Uh, it was the opening night film of the first Los Jewish Angeles film. Jewish Film Festival. Correct. I think that's where you saw it. And we were afraid that nobody else would see it. And, uh, and because it was a, a rotten theatrical release, we got a rotten DVD deal, and we never got reports or any money, and we had no idea if anyone saw the movie. We assumed they didn't when the accidental talmudist facebook page started to grow it started thank you david as a blog at the jewish journal so accidental talmudist has always uh, you know had this warm partnership with the jewish journal but if you have a blog you should have a facebook page we started the facebook page and always thought of it as a community people who are interested in this in this ancient jewish wisdom and it started to take off it just grew and grew and grew I don't really know what the secret sauce was. It's some combination of, 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 the wisdom itself, and and my manner, and and Nina's guidance, and and the way that we put it together, and made it very digestible, and uh, and Rabbi Artson from the University of Judaism said, and and a, a big part of it is because we're you know visual people, we're filmmakers. He said that there was always a, a visual attractiveness to the page, and that that helped every post grow. Whatever the reason, the community grew and grew. And it was only once we'd been doing it for a few years that we realized, oh, you know, we made a movie uh, about Judaism, (laughs) a Passover comedy. Maybe our audience (laughs) for the Accidental Talmud would be interested to hear that we made such a film. And and so we did a post where we announced, we made this movie, you might want to watch it. It's a comedy about Passover. And instantly the comments section started lighting up you made that movie? We love that movie. We watch that movie every year. And we, and we started to track this out. Wait a minute. You watch you, you watch this movie every year? That was our dream. How many people are doing this? And then we slowly started to learn that the movie, by word of mouth alone, has grown and grown and grown. And at this point, there's hundreds of thousands of people who watch it every year. Now,
0: how can people get it?
1: Uh, when will take you everywhere you need to go. It gotcha. is on Amazon Prime. That's a great
0: way to watch it. When Yes. Highly recommended, even if it's not Passover. Absolutely. Any holiday will do. I'm curious about uh, your Daf Yomi journey and the accidental Talmudist Facebook page journey. Because you, seven and a half years, at which point in the seven and a half years did the the Facebook journey began? It
1: was really the end. Uh, what happened was uh, it's seven and a half years. So I started in March and uh, in 2005 and the completion was coming up in August 2012. I approached you in March of 2012 and I told you this story. Right. That's when you went to New York There
0: was in the big stadium. That right? was later. So oh, this was, was in the okay. spring. Okay.
1: And I, And I said, David, let's have lunch because we haven't had lunch in a while. And then I told you this story, and my thinking was, I should, I should get my story out there because maybe other people who would never think to read the Talmud might try it if they heard about a guy like me and my unlikely story and how much I got out of it, uh, that they might try reading it. So I told you the story, and I said, if I wrote that up, would you print it in the Jewish Journal? Right. And you said, Sal, that's a cover story for the Jewish Journal, <laughs> but you have to write a blog. Write a blog. Right. That's right. So it's your idea to write a blog. That's right. That's right. And I said, Thanks for reminding me. (laughs) (laughs) I said, okay, I'll try writing a blog. And uh and so at first it was a blog, it was a weekly blog, about eight hundred words. Right. Uh at the Jewish Journal. And uh and I enjoyed doing that, but but it took a lot of time and a lot of thinking and a lot of structuring and and Facebook was starting to really hit big, right? And I started the Facebook page just to publicize the blog, right? But I really liked Facebook because on Facebook you could share 800 words one day and an image the next day, three sentences the following day, right. and then a video and then a live video. We were we were very early on to get on the train because our page really grew. Uh, and and we got the check mark of a you know celebrity check mark when they were still do it. they still do that, um, and uh, but in the beginning of live video only celebrities could do it, uh, and and they were really just using it to go backstage and say hey I'm live I'm about to get an Oscar how you doing, and we said let's use this tool to share Torah with the world to share Talmud to share these ancient teachings and so we created a weekly live show. Uh, And that was also a big part of our growth. And so it just, you know, we we just used... Facebook allows you to use every different kind of sharing, and we use them all. What
0: what hits the most? uh, I'm very curious on the Talmudic wisdom that you share that has the best reaction and the worst reaction.
1: The best and the worst. Um, I, I, I think the best is certainly... When, when you share things that are gonna make human interactions work better. Like, I mean, when you talked before about escorting somebody to their door and beyond, uh, and, and that kind of warmth, that's and a do big you, positive. do you
0: have trouble finding them? I mean, what, what what system do you use? Do you go through the Talmud book by book? Is there an order and a structure to how you decide what content to post every day?
1: I wish I could tell you I have a real precise system. <laughs>
0: What do you do <laughs> in the morning? You wake up in the morning and what? How do you know? What I mean, I'm
1: usually connected to the Parsha in some way. So mm-hmm. the weekly Torah portion. Okay. Often it'll come from that. I'm always reading or studying something. Uh, but when I'm not sure where to go, my go-to place will be Pirkei Avot. Because, mm-hmm. because that's already that the greatest. The that's already a greatest hits mm-hmm. of, of Talmudic wisdom. So there's always a great saying there. Uh, and how
0: deep do you go? I mean, you know, Talmud can get pretty cryptic. Do you share some of that cryptic aspect of the Talmud, or do you just stick to creme de la creme? We assume stick to the that
1: we assume that our audience knows nothing, right? So the the, the assumption is you, you don't. We always treat it like you don't have to know anything to get something out of it. Um, if we have a, a secret sauce, I think it's related to this, that. Uh, we find a way to make it accessible to all without dumbing it down, right? So I'll translate everything. I won't assume you know any Hebrew or Aramaic jargon. I won't assume that you know the rules of Shabbat. I'll, I'll explain everything. But what I'll aim for is something sophisticated, you know, so, so that even though you don't have the prior knowledge, you'll think, oh, that's deep. That, that's what I'm always after. Now,
0: there was a famous movie a few years ago, right? on the Talmud, I forget the name of from Israel? Footnote. Footnote, yes. How did you react to that film?
1: Uh, I mean, I remember the, the setup was interesting. It was a father and son who were both Talmudic scholars. Uh, but it's funny, it was it was about the Talmud, yes, but it was really about academics mm. and, and the politics and jealousies that I think happen in any academic setting among professors. Uh,
0: and that's really what it was like. They, they happen to be professors of Talmud, but it would have been the same story. Right, they didn't get into it. I know same thing with movies that deal with chess. They never really get into it. They just, uh, you know, for people like who love the subject matter, like I love chess, they never really get into it. Right. Yeah, they sort of keep at a at a certain distance. Is there a chance that Talmud could make a serious comeback in terms of, you know, a movement among the masses, among the mainstream Jewish community to enter the deep, deep waters? I certainly hope so. Uh, like, for you example, know, I, 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 you know, uh, it's not something you will see on the programming of the typical Jewish congregation, right? Whether it's Reform or Conservative or even any Orthodox, you don't yeah. really... See Talmud. Everything has to be so instantly relevant that it just you just don't see the word Talmud right. in in synagogue programming.
1: Well, listen. First of all, now you're talking about people who are connected to a synagogue, so at, at least they're at least they're getting the email from the synagogue to tell them what classes are available. But the tragedy is that most Jews aren't connected to a synagogue at all. I mean, there's a real crisis of, of Jewish ignorance in the world. This is a this is a tradition and a people of the book. If, if we are disconnected from our sources and from a learning tradition, then we have lost a lot and the world has lost a lot.
0: But it feels that Talmud would probably be for those kind of people, step number 10. You know, there are so many things that feel they should come before. And the, the, you, know, you
1: know, it's step number 10. If by Talmud you mean committing to daily study between two people who are going to spend an hour each day arguing, uh, you know, the, the real Talmudic type of discourse, the traditional type of discourse, and what does it mean, you know, that Reb Yehoshua says uh, you can't eat this particular fish, and, and, and another rabbi says you can't but you don't have to go that far to form a meaningful contact with this tradition. Um, so, well, I, I've taken one step in that direction. I teach a class online. It's uh, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific. Uh, it, it, so if you're available at that time, then you can join us live. It's in the form of a webinar.
0: Okay, tell me about the class.
1: Um, so you can find it at accentaltalmudist.org. People register. Uh, and then we use the Zoom software so so that they have a closer contact with us than just the Facebook Live show. Facebook Live is like radio. People come, people go. They're there for a few seconds, a few minutes, the same way you turn the radio on and off in your car. But when you commit to be in the class, you're saying, okay, I want to show up and, and learn for an hour. Uh, I'm the teacher, but it is, it is a community, and there's a comment section where people are asking questions. And Uh, If people want to, they can turn on their webcam and literally be in the virtual classroom. Uh, And then they can get a taste of the real stuff. Now, what's funny is I just, this past week, past last Wednesday, I think we taught the 16th session. And that was the first time we're actually taught a page of Talmud. (laughs) So I brought people along slowly and we covered a lot of other subjects first. But I thought, you know, I am the accidental Talmudist. Let's just go into Talmud. And, uh, and maybe the first 15 minutes, it was just a little background. What is the Talmud? When was it written? Who are the authors, et cetera? And then we just dove right in, and people loved it. And, and I have to tell you that half the people are not Jewish. Uh, and that's an important thing that, that we've done all along. Uh, we make it accessible to all, not just to Jews that are not connected to Judaism, but to non-Jews
0: as well. And you must be quite selective about the passage, right, that you teach? To make sure that it's... To make sure that it works. Too obscure, Yeah.
1: I mean, one thing we get from time to time, usually some form of troll, will say, doesn't the Talmud say uh, that that you can rip off non-Jews and that you have sex with children? And they they take a few passages that are misunderstood that when taken out of context would seem to say something shocking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is literally... This is akin to... The U.S. Code is what? It's a compilation of court cases and decisions rendered by judges, right? For, for over hundreds of years of American history. And in such a book, you will find testimony from different witnesses in different cases. And you can certainly find a witness who will say something racist and shocking and terrible. That doesn't mean that the United States is shocking and terrible, or, or, or that the legal system of the United States is shocking and terrible. It just means that there was somebody who said a few words in a massive compilation uh, of testimonies and and, and and court decisions. Likewise, in the Talmud, there are a few shocking passages, but that's not what the tradition
0: is about. Right. You have, what, 500 years of debates and discussions. and 2,500
1: years, because they, they never stopped adding to it. Correct. You know, there was the Mishnah and the Gemara, the original compilations, but then the commentators over this centuries since then, I've kept adding to it.
0: It's a unique facet of the Jewish religion, isn't it? I mean, I can't think of any other religion that has this, you know, idea of minutia. I mean, we take everything in life seriously, right? All the little details of interaction among us, and when you lend money, when you borrow money, when you get divorced, when... You know, all the situations that come up in life, it seems to be almost a a, a legal code.
1: You know, uh, let me answer that by way of saying... What I'm
0: saying is it doesn't feel very spiritual. It doesn't feel like the words of a religion. And I know it is (laughs) when you go deep into it. Right. But the curb appeal of of the Talmud, doesn't feel And that's
1: why you can't just pick it up and read it. It needs to be taught. And that's what it always was.
0: It right. needs the to be written, taught
1: and discussed. Yeah. The written Torah is the Torah. That, and, and, then the, and then the prophets and the and the writings that came after it and became the Bible, right? That's the written scripture. The Talmud wasn't meant to be written down. It was meant to be an oral tradition passed down from teacher to student in a process. That what matters is the time you spend learning it, not that you stayed up at night, read a few chapters, you know, read a few pages, oh, okay, I got that, and mm-hmm. move on. No, it's an ongoing discussion,
0: and that's where it happens. And speaking of uh, teaching, you taught a class at a retreat, Sinai retreat, called Schnooks at Sinai. With a title like that, <laughs> I have to ask you to share in a very brief way what your Schnooks at Sinai class was.
1: Um, so I, I do a lot of uh, public speaking. I'm often brought in to, uh, to tell my accidental Talmudist tale. I, I told you a little bit of it earlier in this broadcast, um, but it's, it's more expanded, and I do other talks as well. And then this was a new talk that Nina and I developed for a Passover retreat uh, where we appeared in, in San Diego this year. And, uh, and here, this is wonderful because we had a nice intersection of our filmmaking career uh, and, and our love of Judaism and the Jewish tradition. And so we did a talk in the form of a pitch, a pitch meeting, where the audience is the studio boss. And we say to them, you, you, you know, you're the head of a studio. You've got a massive corner office. You have four assistants. Your assistants have assistants. And you're aware that biblical movies are back, which is true. There have been a lot of Bible epics in, in the last few years. And uh, you want a fresh take on the Bible epic. And uh, so you bring in your favorite screenwriters, Sal and Nina Litvack. And, uh, and this is what we're pitching to you. And basically, it's the Exodus story. It's the, the slaves from Egypt being rescued by God and led out to the, into the desert and finally to Sinai to receive the Torah, but not from the point of view of Moses or Miriam or Aaron or the big stars of the story, but rather two guys in the back row. <laughs> One was a, a fanner, a kind of a house slave who would just lift the fan all day long. And another one was a beer musher mm-hmm. who was just walking in the fermenting gruel and kind of high on fumes all the time and and what their experience was like being one of two million people leaving in this you know the, the when you think of two million people leave, leaving Egypt, you just think, "Oh yeah, they all left Egypt." No, this was a parade of two million people mm-hmm. the The guys at the end of the line didn't cross the starting line till ten hours later you know. It's it's an incredible procession, two million people. And what was it like to be part of such a big group? Uh, and so how did news did they buy get did it? they
0: buy the film?
1: Yes, the audience said, "We're making that movie." <laughs> <laughs> wow, I love that. I, too bad. Did they film it? Uh, you know, Dennis Prager was a speaker there also, and we invited him to come, and uh, and and he couldn't make it because of a scheduling conflict. But he said, "Please get me a recording of that. I give you my word, I will listen to it." so we just laid it down a few days ago and made a video recording and uh and we're going to put that on our website so you could find it at accidentaltalmudist.org schnooks at sinai
0: schnooks at sinai Mm. headline of the year and just before i let you go you're going to speak at the jli conference in july
1: yes so so the jewish learning institute has a, a national retreat each year and i'm a featured speaker there that's going to be in providence rhode island uh, and in fact, if people, you can just Google JLI retreat. There's going to be amazing speakers there. You've been a speaker there in the past, so you know there's right. very high quality speakers. Uh, and if people register using the code JLI Talmudist, they get
0: $50 off. Wonderful. Well, w- we wish you much luck and success in your Talmudic journey, Sal, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me.